Good evening. Welcome to the August 25th, 2021 QPSC. Let's go to a roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Esteen. Here. Trustee Dung is absent today. Trustee Friedman is uh, not here yet. And Trustee Jensen. Here. Thank you. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, I will uh, uh, talk about the purpose of QPSC as I like to do, and then we'll, we'll open it up for any public comment on non-agendized items. Uh, as a reminder, the purpose of the QPSC. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. So that is our charter and our charge. We'll now go into public comment. And as a reminder, this, this board welcomes all public comment. As they say, all feedback is a gift and uh, we will be in receipt of it if there is any. Madam Clerk? I don't have any. Wow, no public comment. Scanning the room in case there is a last second. And I do not see a last second. Going once, twice, and that will close public comment. Uh, let's go into item A, the, 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 the chair's reports or the, or the articles. Uh, two articles are in your packet. The first was uh, from uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it was entitled the experience of health system faculty, staff, and trainees, career development, work culture, and child care needs during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I think a particularly important one, I, this, 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 this selection of this article was inspired by Trustee Jensen's comments at a, at a prior meeting where she inquired about the impact of COVID on our culture. The second article is entitled Health Care Management During COVID-19, insights from complexity science. So I want to hit a, a few summary points and then again open it up for comments. The first article on the experience of health system uh, faculty, staff, and trainees during this COVID-19 era. This was a very interesting survey. It comes out of the University of Utah and they sent this survey through a, through a Qualmetrics uh, survey which is a, a stand, uh, which is a commercial instrument and they sent it to nearly their entire 28,000 employees. They got about 5,000 responses, and I want to sort of summarize some of the key elements of the response and then open up the dialogue. About 75% of the respondents were women. The median age was 40. About 50% of the patients who, of, of the people who responded had clinical responsibilities within the system, and about 50% of the respondents had at least one child. Now, as they went into the summary part of it, uh, some, some important elements um, here. About half of those who responded reported that parenting and managing virtual education for their children were significant stressors. Yeah, that feels about right, doesn't it? About 21% actually considered leaving the workforce. 30% considered reducing their work hours. And 50 to 60% were worried about COVID-19 impacting their career development. The, the concluding statement of this article was that health systems must develop effective strategies to ensure that the workplace acknowledges and supports employees during this unprecedented time. 
not only within the work environment, but also in managing unanticipated childcare responsibilities due to lack of childcare or in-person school. In doing so, health systems will improve the likelihood of retaining generations of well-trained clinicians, scientists, and staff. So that was the article. One might argue maybe this article might be more apropos to our HR committee, but uh, I, I'm in the belief that if we take care of our people, the people will take care of the quality and the operations and the like. And I wanted to, of course, give due respect to Trustee Jensen setting us on this journey about discussion of this. So I'll, I'll open this, this, this article for comment from anyone on the floor, starting with trustees. And then I see our CEO as a stand. Trustees, any comments on this particular article? Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I mean, um, good article and not surprising um, results at all. And I think COVID exacerbated it, but it also kind of like really underlines that as a nation, we don't have a children agenda, like which or which allows like work-life balance and which allows folks to be able to um, do that. So it is like the health system is just uh, one of the sectors in which like you feel that there is absolutely no support systems done because like in a, in our nation's infrastructure, we don't do, uh, you know, childcare, paid leave, all of the kind of our organization does, but like the other things that frontline workers and other folks that have to do doesn't happen. So um, it is true, but the just the fact that for so many, leaving the workforce is the only option that they can think of that is so untenable, that is kind of um, shocking to see how human capital is exploited. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Jensen? It, it just um, kind of illustrates also how um, people during the pandemic, especially those who work, who are the frontline caregivers, the frontline workers, the people who can't work remotely or work at home, have almost a double whammy of being having to be at work on site and also knowing that their children have to have someone especially elementary school children will have to have someone there to support them while they're studying remotely. And, and thirdly, the, those frontline workers are the ones who are most likely to, to or most worried about being infected of the, during the pandemic. So, I mean, these are, it was a good article. Of course, it, it was not, um, nothing really profound in my opinion. I, I, I knew that this was, these were issues, but it does um, really illustrate how hard it is to be um, a frontline worker, what it is that 80 or 90 percent of whom are women and also have to deal with these um, the, the issues of having the especially having the ch lack of child care and the, the remote learning for your children. Thank you for your comments, Trustee Jensen. Mr. Jackson, I see your hand, sir. Thank you very much. Chair Bouquet, and may I share my screen? Of course. I, I will be brief, but I just, I, um, I, I felt like this. It. Excuse there me? You go, sir. No, there you go. I just didn't Very know good. how to get you sharing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this was a great topic, and I'm grateful to Trustee Jensen for prompting the conversation. Um, this is something that Lorna Jones put together um, just to illustrate some of the recent changes that we've made to the benefits available to employees of the organization. Um, 
The first one you can see that we have a new employee assistance program provider that's Claremont and via Claremont, the benefits have been expanded and that includes um, five visits instead of three per incident and simple will kits. And the EAP is a 100% confidential employer paid benefit. Um, so wanted to share that. Two bright horizons to the issue that was just spoken to in regards to childcare. We've partnered with Bright Horizons so that active employees who are a 0.5 or greater can receive family support and the benefits that are listed um, there for your review. And then finally, we have the SEIU Education Fund available to those who are represented by SEIU and you can see the benefits that are bulleted um, there at the bottom third of the page. And so um, did not want to belabor it, but just felt like it was um, supportive of the dialogue that was prompted by Trustee Jensen and furthered by the article. Thank you. Mr. Jackson, were the, were, were, so the, the Bright Horizons, and I actually was a former Bright Horizon family when my kids were small. Um, uh, is this a new, this is new to the organization? I'm going to ask um, our uh, Chief Human Resources Officer, Lorna Jones, to speak to the specifics of Bright Horizon. Lorna, can you uh, weigh in? Sure. Good evening, I, Ms. Jones. Good evening, everyone. So Bright Horizons um, became a benefit we contracted with in 2020 during the pandemic. And um, it sunsetted in the beginning of 2021. However, we have extended that contract. Um, so it's it's still a, a current benefit because of the issues that, uh, surrounding, um, you know, individuals needing additional assistance with finding care for their loved ones. So we did contract to extend it. Thank you, Ms. Jones. Trustees, any other, uh, uh, Trustee Jensen, I mean, Trustee Esteem. Yeah, I don't wanna belabor the point too much because I think Trustee Banerjee made really, really excellent points about the burden on women in our society and the lack of resources that we have therein. But I'm curious about the Bright Horizons. Uh, how utilizes that resource and how long has the contract been extended? Um, so I don't know about the utilization. I can find that out for you. I'd be happy to provide that under separate cover um, in the future to the board. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, they, they offer a myriad of different type of solutions for people, not just for children, but for those that have the care for their parents or elderly relative. Um, but if you'd like me to present that, I can come back and present that to that. Trustee Esteem, you are a uh, cherished member of our HR committee. And uh, I think that this, uh, this is also, I, I apologize to our HR committee members because it sort of steals from this. But in my view, our people directly relate to our ability to execute quality here. So uh, uh, thank you, Ms. Jones. Thank you, Mr. Jackson, for trying to steward that kind of culture of looking after our people. So um, with that, I'm going to go to the second article. The second article was entitled, Healthcare Management During COVID-19, Insights from Complexity Science. I'm just going to sort of read the intro and make a summary, and then we'll go into comment sections, and then, then I'll get down off the soapbox. Uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is a powerful reminder that we live in a highly complex and unpredictable world. For healthcare delivery organizations, effective responses to the pandemic have required departures from many conventional practices. The COVID-19 pandemic has presented an array of novel and acute challenges 
from managing the supply chain for personal protective equipment to adjusting workforce capacity to coping with financial loss. In the midst of these challenges lies an opportunity for healthcare leaders to better position and transform their organizations for a future of unpredictable surprise. We discussed in this article the key challenges facing healthcare organizations during this pandemic and review the complexity science perspective, which offers a framework for creating resilience and agility when the future is unknown. I was, I was, I was having a conversation with a colleague on this uh, very recently, and uh, we were talking about how, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the co complexity science is, it's so complex. So when you get a complex problem, uh, uh, it's easy to go off in a million different directions. So maybe one of the take-home lessons, and I'll take full, full responsibility for this because they said I don't want to say this in public, keeping it simple, stupid. And, and I, I, I totally agree with her. Uh, and, and, and when things get so complex, sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, going back to a simple plan, and their simple plan, well, they asserted that there are three key guides in complex moments, communication, collaboration, and innovation. And I know that's sort of like an easy catch-all kind of thing, but I think over-communicating, over-collaborating, and those will help drive innovation. So I thought that was a, uh, a good article to discuss. Uh, and then you, if you read the article, there are six organizations which had kind of different responses. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's pretty meta. It's sort of that just thinking about how we think about things. Um, so I'll open this up for any comments from the trustees first on this article. My, um, uh, it was a good article. I, um, I'll just urge you to have to pick articles like this one, like case studies more than the, um, actual, population studies the first one with the you know the the those are good for um for studies of the population i think but the first one was a little bit dense in terms of you know looking at the pop at the control group and the and the the other groups and looking at the different um variables so i, I would just in my opinion the the second one was more accessible and i appreciate the case study model and i also wanted to um point out, though, that the second one, uh, my problem with the second article is that it, there are four problems, inadequate capacity, supply shortages, the need for care redesign, and financial loss don't address the problem that we really looked at in the first article, which is the the um, issue of employee burnout and, and providing resources for employees. So it, it's kind of like these two articles didn't mesh very well, in my opinion. Got it. Thank you for those comments. Trust. Trustees, any other trustees? Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I, I think, again, um, though it seems very obvious, but um, even as a health system, sometimes um, it, like a, a crisis like this brings out like how many interdependencies we need to have and how important it is to do that. So like some new ones that were built up that were, uh, though that, that the innovation part of it that were good that even post COVID, I think we should be exploring to keep like what was good, it, it, new relationships, new interdependencies, new things like even the telehealth or other things that came up during COVID that like post might also help increase access if there's um, financial um, structures built around it, but also. Like really brought home that no system 
however resilient would have been pre-COVID could handle this alone, that collaboration is all that was necessary. So brings back all of the work that Felicia, the groups that were working with the county were doing, how Richard Espinosa brought all these new ways of like uh, vaccine and testing, like so many new things emerged from because of uh, when you are in a space of like deep crisis. So though our AHS wasn't one of those, like I was thinking as I was reading about MIC and things like all of the ways that Alameda Health System like um, adapted. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Asin. I think that uh, efficiencies in service delivery is always really important to managing a well-oiled machine. And I think having a deeper pipeline of providers and a system that isn't uh, scarcely funded and often uh, stripped bare of resources so as to achieve the most efficient product in the end. Um, In other words, our public health system needs more funding and we need to have a real pipeline of providers that are able to provide care so that we don't have to figure out how to operate the most lean, mean machine as possible. Um, and I think that that's a societal deeper issue about funding into our educational system as well as funding our public health system so that we don't have to scramble at the last minute to be able to provide care. Uh, you know. And if we had universal health care also, how great it would be that we could provide care to everyone in the community and not just those who suddenly show up when everyone's life is on the line. Yes, ma'am. Uh, kind of a, 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 your, your comments sort of highlight the complex interrelated uh, uh, levels from all the way from national and government down to local and then money with quality and quality with operations and complex stuff. Communication, collaboration, innovation, I think are, is, is a good way to kind of uh, be a, a good mantra for us. So um, with that, I'm going to close out item A, if that's acceptable to everyone, and we'll move to item B. Um, We'll go now into the consent agenda. Trustees, the consent agenda is before you. There's only items B1 and B2 there. Before entertaining a motion to approve the entirety of the consent agenda, are there any items that need to be removed for discussion? I see head shaking no. With that, I'll entertain a motion to to approve the entirety of item B. So moved. A second. I have a, I have a motion and a second. Uh, uh, Madam Clerk, roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Jensen. I, I see her saying aye. Yeah, no, yeah I saw that. Uh, yes. <laughs> slip reading. The motion does pass. Thank you. Thank, thank you. With that, we will close item B, and we will go into the medical staff reports. Part of our uh, charter here is to directly engage with our medical staff leaders. We'll o- open this evening with Dr. Brandon Besh, who is our vice chief of staff for, uh, uh, for the core system, Alameda Health System. Dr. Besh, good evening. Good evening, Dr. Bouquet. How are you? Doing well. Have at it, sir. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Um, so the first part of my report is we'll discuss, discuss in closed session um, on credentialing and privileging. 
Um, and then I think we went to committee reports, which CME continues to be a bright spot um, that has grown over the last few years. I would like to just kind of point out that I really appreciate the support and funding of the role that Jenna Reznor has filled um, as the CME coordinator to help us build something that can have 3,000 attendees from like 60 a year before, uh, the, in the years before. So that's been wonderful, and there's tons of interest in it. Um, from the AHS bylaws, so this is near and dear to my heart as, as vice chief of staff, of, uh, and, and there is a lot of work done last year um, before I took this role um, by Rachel Baden and Jean Hearn and Kelly Ballard and Satira um, on working on, on all of these, all of these uh, bylaws. And then I picked that up in January and it got approved at MEC. It will go out to the um, uh, medical staff in the coming days uh, with the hope of a timeline of being approved um, at the October MEC um, by the medical staff and come to the board, uh, deliver to the board sometime after that, hopefully giving you a few weeks to review and then up to the board of trustees on November 10th meeting. So that's kind of the timeline right now for the bylaws. Um, so, so really a ton of work put in and, and so grateful for everyone's, uh, support on that, um, department reports. So I put this on because there actually was not a department report this, this month at, at the HSMEC, but we were talking about, I, I was receiving sometimes texts and phone calls from department chairs saying, man, thanks for talking about that in front of the QPSC or the board of trustees, but um, uh, you know, I, w I wish we could have focused on this. And I was like, well, let's send an email or, or send something to the board. And I think some of those have actually come back up and, and have been asked to be presented in QPSC. And so uh, with working with Satira, we're trying to create a format where it could be a succinct report from each department, maybe uses some of this time for me uh, from that I have or the chief of staff has for the department share of OBGYN or ED or anesthesia to give a report um, a, a brief summary of what, you know, what they're excited about, what they need, and what they look forward to building in, in their department. So I, I think it's something that I kind of, it's maybe a question for the trustees of should that be in QPSC, should that be to the main board, um, but I'll, I'll kind of leave that discussion to the end of my, uh, end of my presentation. Um, I think the next part is kind of my big issue. So, so COVID-19 um, we talked about burnout. We talked about in the first article all the things that have come up for providers. Um, I think that that you know we're still feeling these things. Um, you know, knock on wood, we've been pretty steady. Um, there's been some really rough cases, but but we're pretty steady in the hospitals right now. Um, so so there's some hope that that some of the things done in the Bay Area maybe are slowing it down. Um, the other part we're working on as a medical staff is uh, obtaining the vaccine cards and, and proof of vaccine for the medical staff. Um, currently, we sent out communication about nine days ago, and we have 289 um, responses of fully vaccinated staff sending those in. Um, and you know, we're happy with that, that response so far, and there's more work to do. Um, the next part of COVID is the Delta variant. It is different. And I think Dr. Tornabene is going to talk about this in a few minutes. Um, but, but people are getting better than worse. Um, they're much younger. I was on service and had, had five COVID patients and my, my team of, of 12 patients, the average age was 48, which is just extraordinarily long, young. 
um, even for Highland, where we have a young age of admission, it was just really young. And so that was that was pretty shocking to me. Um, but there'll be much more on this um, by Dr. Benny in just a few minutes. Um, and then I think the next piece is the culture of safety. And I think leadership and culture of safety kind of are going to fit together a little bit for me tonight um, because I think we, we had some things come up. Some They'd come up through the medical staff as far as working on communicating handoffs amongst teams, amongst service lines, um, amongst clinics, um, and, and clinics working together. And so we're really looking to partner with the resources we have, such as Team Steps, which is, we've had success with, and other areas within the organization to, to build these processes, build this improvement. And I think, I think it goes to what the second article was talking about, is let's let's keep it kind of simple, right? What do we need to do? We need to communicate. We need we need to connect and collaborate, and then and then we can can do that innovation. And I think I think there there are still a lot of silos within our organization, and we need to break those down. And that's kind of part of what what the what I think those headers kind of mean for my safety and culture um, um, discussion. And then from leadership, um, I, I think that. Uh, something we talked about on the MEC was was how can we utilize all the resources that we do have to support the medical staff, to support the physicians in all aspects of our care and our leadership and our training. So, so how can we leverage and work together as MEC leaders, as uh, employment group contractors, or employment group, EBMG, UCSF, how can we work with AHS and how can we come together and form a vision for what that looks like? I think there's been a lot of talk about that because I think that we, like I said, there's silos within these, these, these kind of, these kind of deeply rooted organizations and we need to start communicating and using the resources that each of us has to make the best leadership, best frontline staff, best patient care we can um, uh, and, and so I think I think there's been discussion around that. More to come, hopefully, in further presentations around that. Um, uh, and, and after I talk with leaders about this, and then the last is governance. Um, so this came up because uh, Mr. Jackson actually presented an MEC that they went to the board of supervisors to discuss. Um, uh, I, I don't know if it was a grant or, a, or or I don't know exactly the name of the funding from the from the from the from the government that was given to our county. But but the medical staff was wondering. How can we work with our AHS to say, this is what we're doing on the front lines. This is what we need as doctors on the front lines from a medical staff. And so I think that we wanted that collaboration. And that led to more conversations with other medical staff members saying, so that's the first step. How do we get that money? And then the next step is how do we help be a say in our governance structure moving forward? And so with that, I will end my report. And open it up for questions. Um, uh, oh, man, that was jam packed. That was a, uh, there was a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, oh, I had to no. leave some stuff out too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'll uh, open it up to trustees, and then I have some comments as well. Trustees, any comments to Dr. Besh? I think the idea of having the chairs, Dr. Besh, uh, present at QPSC. I do think, on one hand, that it would be good to elevate them 
uh, in the full board, but the kind of substantive discussions that can happen in QPSC sometimes is like it's always curtailed and very short uh, in the full board session. So I, I, I at least from this one vote, one one trustee, I would uh, love to have that because the closer we are to the work, uh, the better we would be as trustees be able to advocate for the system. And then really with thinking about, you know, um, each one of those, the leadership, the transitions as you're thinking about and all of that. And I know that uh, Dr. Akhileshwaran has said it, other chiefs have also said it of having physician voice in the strategy in like how you can help not just our, you know, uh, clinical, but our um, fiscal and uh, other ways as well, like thinking about like what would be uh, ways in which we can really build on the strengths that we have within our um, system as well. So yeah. All, all yes on all of those. Uh, thank you for sharing. Thanks. Trustees, other comments? Uh, doc, Dr. Besh, I, I think, I think uh, you know, I think there are 11 different departments within the, the core system. So, um, you know, uh, and this particular agenda item split amongst Alameda Hospital, San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee and the core uh, really is allocated only about 20, roughly 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, as I'll say to each of you, uh, the, the, the gift of time is given you guys. I'm going to let you guys work on how you allocate that time out. So if you, if, if, uh, I, uh, and of course planning and discussion with us, but I think that, I think if you were to allocate a couple of minutes to a chair at, at your discretion, I, I, I think that would be well received. And then it's a course about time management. Another thing is uh, uh, to the audience and, uh, and to presenters, you should presume that your board has read their packet. It's part of our homework and our job. So I, I think there's an opportunity for each of your 11 chairs to write a brief summary that they would like for the board to hear. And then this can become the, if you will, the trigger point for us to say, hey, Dr. Besh, Dr. Uh, so-and-so, the chair of so-and-so had a, an issue about this. Can you advise further on? And you could say, well, Dr. So-and-so happens to be in the room, you know, and, and having your, your chairs uh, maybe in attendance at this QPSC could, could, could maybe be uh, a helpful uh, evolution of this kind of dialogue. And then I guess my last comments are, uh, I love your story about collaboration uh, uh, on, on, on this funding. And uh, in my view, collaboration is sort of a function of relationship. And I know that uh, there were some med staff members who felt uh, security in the relationship to take the question to our CEO, and and that so so I'll, I'll continue to reemphasize the importance of relationship in moderating communication, collaboration, and innovation. So I hope that's appropriate guidance. It would be nice to have a report from all the chairs, and then maybe there's some coordination with the Alameda Hospital medical staff. So maybe we're not hearing from two departments of medicine, maybe a unified approach. And again, this is sort of exciting because we get to innovate and build it however we like. Um, can I add one thing? Of course, yes. And also that we can embed like multiple ways of knowing. I saw our doctor chair be very stingy with like two minutes and how much can you uh, can you cover in two minutes so if they if they it doesn't has to be polished but if it's like a 
like a snippet, a video snippet or something even with a cell phone taken on site where we are looking at the faces of the people who are doing yeah. the work and having them share um, a little bit uh, instead of reading, um, having to have reading that and that can be embedded, that's fine too. So like any which way that makes the lift easier for folks to share. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Uh, and I do sometimes act stingy on time, so appreciate the feedback. And, and I will say that, uh, that this committee, this board is not in the business of stifling important dialogue. So uh, so, uh, so load them up, Dr. Besh. I see our CEO has his hand up. Um, Mr. Jackson, sir. Thank you very much, Chair Bouquet. And certainly I, I can hold my comments until the trustees have spoken. I did want to address the comment that Dr. Besh made about my remarks to MEC. And so if you'd like to let the trustees speak and then I can go after, that would be fine. How about just take it right now, sir? Okay, thank you. Um, so thank you, Dr. Besh, for making reference to my comments at the most recent MEC. I was speaking about the American Rescue Plan Act uh, funds that have been made available to the Alameda County in the tune of, uh, I believe it's $324 million or thereabouts. And so um, we, AHS, um, partnered with Washington Hospital and St. Rose Hospital to make an ask for what the three organizations um, identified as their losses due to COVID over the past 18 months. And so that was the ask. And so I was sharing with the MEC that we had made such an ask. Um, Dr. Duong, I believe, from the emergency department was fantastic. Um, he said, can, can we help, you know? And so, um, I, you know, I, I love it. I said, I don't know if you're stepping forward, or if everybody else stepped back, but that means that you know, <laughs> Dr. Duong, I'll be talking to you about this as we move forward. And so, um, I welcome the opportunity to liaison with our medical staff, um, for whatever funds that we receive as a result of that ask. Thank you. Thank you. And any other comments or questions to Dr. Besh? Dr. Besh, thank you for your report. Thank you. Next, we'll go to Alameda Hospitals. I believe that Dr. Nikki Joshi is uh, present, uh, presenting on Dr. Dr. Kathy Pyun, who is the Chief of Staff. And then after this, Dr. Adris Afzali will go. Good evening, Dr. Joshi. Good evening. Thank you, everybody, for the opportunity to speak to you all. Um, the report is in the book, as you can see. And so we have credentials and privileging, which we can talk about further during closed session. And this report, which is much shorter than uh, Dr. Besh's, but luckily we share a lot of the same concerns, so no need to repeat um, some of that. Uh, but what we did want to talk about and highlight were some of our key areas of concerns that I know that Dr. Pune has mentioned before, and, and I can give maybe a little bit different perspective um, from my role. But uh, one is our access to diagnostic imaging and MRI availability. Uh, we know that we've had some issues with um, staffing and that has extended to our techs who do our echoes. Uh, we know that they are working diligently to improve that. In terms of our availability of MRI, we've had some issues. Uh, Judy Sipes, who we are working with, has been fantastic in trying to help us overcome some of the hurdles we face with getting timely MRIs, especially for our admitted patients at Alameda Hospital. Uh, for example, we are working on developing um, a, a protocol for what could be a stat MRI for our stroke code patients. So that's very early stage, but it's one example of collaborating with Judy, which I have found to really appreciate. And I believe once that is done and vetted and, um, 
employed that it will be a good benefit to our stroke patients at Alameda Hospital. The other point that's listed is our coordination of care and patient transfers. This refers to our um, transfer center. Um, also not a new issue, but we believe that the transfer center can be optimized. We believe that there are many opportunities to transfer our patients within AHS, not just Alameda to Highland, but also Highland to Alameda. And I look forward to working with our new clinician lead, who is Dr. Malik, in terms of optimizing our ICU to ICU transfers, um, which could really help some of our patients at Alameda who need acute care that can only be received at Highland. Um, some other work that we are doing in this regard is expanding access to our surgical subspecialties at Alameda Hospital uh, to those specialties that are currently only available at Highland. So Dr. Zali, who's going to speak next, for example, has been instrumental in expanding neurosurgery coverage and future state will include OMFS and ENT and urology. So while these are areas of concern, there are um, either programs in early phase or you know, a lot of planning already gone into optimizing these areas. So we're happy for that. Um, some other areas that we are doing some work but definitely need to do more is our ability to do e-consults. This refers to our ability when we discharge inpatient and emergency department patients to be able to make them primary care appointments after they are discharged. Currently, there's some issues with Epic. There's some um, barriers that don't allow us to put in those consults so easily. So there are groups working on that. Um, we've had issues with infectious disease um, specialty at Alameda Hospital that we're also working to deal with. And I know that Dr. Tornabene did a lot of work on that last week. So these are areas of concern, but we're doing a lot to improve upon it. And there are more areas of opportunity where we can continue to improve. And that is the end of my report. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Joshi, for your report. Uh, trustee Scanning, I see Trustee Esteen's hand up. Trustee Esteen, comments? Is Question. there MRI and scanning capability at Alameda Hospital or does that, okay, good. So on yes. site. We have MRI on site at Alameda Hospital. Trustee, is another question? Uh, Dr. Joshi, please. Yeah, sorry, uh, just a little bit more expansion. Um, during the daytime, they schedule outpatient uh, appointments and you know the nuances of the scheduling I, I don't fully understand of course that's within Judy Sipes's purview but um, some of the issues the inpatient docs have is that within the schedule that's already set for outpatient how to fit in the inpatient so that's where we have to juggle and navigate any other comments for Dr. Joshi scanning all right Dr. Joshi, thank you for your presentation. Good evening, Dr. Afzali. Good evening, everyone. Hope everyone's doing well. Um, updates from San Leandro Hospital. Uh, first, firstly, I wanted to mention the, uh, that uh, Dr. Uh, Jake Schwarz has stepped down as vice chair of the SLH Leadership Committee uh because of clinical obligations uh and so we're looking for a replacement for the position uh which is also a uh at-large member position for the mec uh and we have a couple of candidates uh lined up that we will be presenting during uh our september meeting uh so hopefully we'll have a replacement uh to uh share with the mec uh in september 
Um, the uh, ethics committee that I had mentioned last month, uh, we'll have our second planning meeting tomorrow where I hope to give a uh, sort of skeleton framework for their charter uh, and then hand off the reins to uh, Glorinda Pastorius uh, and Dr. Uh, David Singh uh, of the Hospitalist Medicine Group uh, to to take over as co-chairs of that committee. Um, and so uh, I hope to close that item uh, by next month. Um, next item uh, to bring up is specialty follow-up, which has already been mentioned a couple of times. Uh, I wanted to thank Catherine Horner for uh, sort of taking the lead uh, from Dr. Williams on the um, outpatient referrals from the ED and inpatient at a very productive meeting last week, and I won't say any more about it because I'm sure it will be mentioned again here today, uh, but looking forward to getting some pilots going on that. Uh, teletriage, uh, Dr. Joshi mentioned the uh, neurosurgery teleconsult pathway. Um, that is up and uh, the pilot is up and running again as of the 16th. Um, and uh, so uh, having the outpatient follow-up uh, referrals uh, as part of that uh, will be will be very helpful and sort of rounding out the, the requirements for that. Um, I had mentioned teletriage last month. Um, that uh, we, we had our pilot last Monday on the 16th. It went uh, really well. Uh, I'm in the process of writing up a more, uh, more long-term approach as well as indications for when we should trigger it. Uh, the one challenge that remains is staffing teletriage. We will either uh, have uh, one of the providers in the ED uh, that are on shift uh, or uh, while the pilot is ongoing, uh, I'll likely staff it remotely. Um, so uh, it was actually very helpful on that Monday because it was a, it was a busy day uh, and uh, I saw uh, quite a number of people uh, remotely. Uh, my hope is that... Uh, I can incorporate some sort of a, a telemedicine uh, approach where I'd also be able to, to discharge some of the lowest acuities, such as medication refills, et cetera, um, uh, remotely. Uh, but that's that's to be determined. There's some uh, issues to work around that with billing and coding, et cetera. Um, the uh, uh, changes to the ED arrival and registration process has been mentioned uh, numerous times. Um, uh, I wanted to acknowledge uh, Mark Fratsky's help with uh, with uh, sort of uh, my proposal to make some uh, changes in, in the San Leandro ED uh, in regards to where registration is, uh, is uh, currently located. Uh, there's been suggestions made in the past about uh, how the arrival process with just the tech uh, uh, is not ideal. Uh, so my hope is to incorporate triage and arrival as well as uh, initial sort of registration into one uh, in, the, in the main ED lobby for those of you who have seen it. Uh, there's there's room there to do that. Uh, it just it, it needs um, uh, some sort of a privacy barrier, uh, which I'm hoping is not a structural change, but uh, working through that um, with engineering. Um, and then... Uh, uh, Dr. Joshi mentioned uh, 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 the changes to leadership in the transfer center. Looking forward to working with them. Uh, haven't had any major uh, bumps in the road lately, uh, despite the high volumes we've been having. Uh, but um, there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, with that, I will pause. And if there's any questions, I'm happy to answer. 
Trustees, any questions of Dr. Abzali? Thank you, Dr. Abzali, for your report. Thank you, Dr. Joshi, for your report. Thank you, Dr. Besh, for your report. With that, we're going to close out uh, medical staff reports. That's item C. We're now going to move into item D, which is uh, uh, a collapsed view of patient safety regulatory affairs and our True North metric dashboard. Uh, I am very pleased to present our new interim chief medical officer. Uh, this is her first presentation in that title, Dr. Tornabene, who everyone knows uh, now with new title. And she'll kind of guide us through, uh, through these elements, which are uh, kind of our dashboard. Of course, she's in support by our uh, a great team, Darshan Graywall, uh, System Director of Patient Safety, Nilda Perez, System Director of Regulatory Affairs, and I think Annette's in the room as well, always our quality analytics manager. Dr. Tornabene, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. Um, mm. Before I go into the report, I do want to just recognize our um, medical staff leaders, thank you for your great reports. Going back to that article, Dr. Bouquet, that you um, had us read earlier, collaboration, innovation, and communication. I think that their reports really um, uh, incorporated all of those themes, and, and I love the, the spirit of collaboration with which we're all uh, moving forward. Um, also, thank you for recognizing our, our quality uh, team. Um, Nilda Perez is representing um, Darshan uh, today, who is off, but um, as you can see, also Annette is in the room. So um, starting out with patient safety, I think that the one of of the key themes um, that has come up before that I want to draw out again is really the reduction in risk events over the last few years. So if you look at the, there's been really a great downtrend in the patient harms and risk events over the last few years. Um, as you can see that the, the, in, the, in the bar chart, especially it's divided into the low risk events. So those are um, uh, events that either don't reach the patient or cause no harm at all. Those are the near misses. And those are the ones that we want definitely more of um, uh, than any of the harms that reach the patient. So our harms um, that reach the patient are consistently um, over the last month, again, the beginning of this fiscal year, 2.4%. And so that is a maintained um, over the last uh, two fiscal years. So I'm happy that we're starting this fiscal year with that same trend. Our risk events that are reported per month also have been um, maintained, and the the um, the categories with uh, that of events that um, uh, are included are medication events, patient behavior, um, treatments, and this is also a consistent pattern compared to prior. Um, now moving on to our patient relations events, those monthly events are also uh, consistent. There's no significant change, either uptrend or downtrend uh, to call out here. Um, and the, again, the, the categories remain the same. Quality of care and access, of course, are huge parts of our uh, complaint, complaints and grievances. Um, moving on to the actual events um, themselves, so you can see in the month of July, um, the, the events are listed out. Uh, the events are included in a number of dis, uh, different categories. There's one in particular that where uh, there was a level F uh, harm, that's harm that reached the patient and 
um, persisted somewhat, potentially uh, leading to a longer hospitalization. Um, and this was a fall. And there is a lot of work I know going on um, a- across the system to address falls. Um, the other harm events you can see in, in the report. Um, going now to our score survey. So the score survey, the work on the score survey is certainly proceeding. So by the end of this month, August of 2021, each of our areas will have been uh, tasked at coming up with their action plan. Um, we are on track there. Uh, the the re- data that you see reported in your packet, um, of course, uh, has been updated. Um, the, this report was issued a few weeks ago, but um, those action plans uh, have been submitted. And so in the next um, uh, board packet, you'll be able to see the robust response that we've been seeing in terms of um, all of our uh, various areas and departments developing their action plans in response to the score survey. So moving on now to uh, regulatory affairs. So this will just be um, high level and then we can get into details in closed session. In the month of July, uh, we did have a, uh, we did have two onsite, uh, we had an onsite visit for two different events. Um, one of the events was uh, investigated and that is still open and we're awaiting decision and one was closed, which was um, uh, a patient risk event uh, that we can discuss further certainly in closed session. Um, in July, we reported two central events to the Joint Commission, and then in August, we've uh, reported uh, already one. Uh, we did have a follow-up call for a patient risk event that occurred earlier this year with the Joint Commission. They did accept our action plan, um, and we will be reporting that back out with the Joint Commission in December. In terms of follow-up from our triennial survey, uh, Uh, earlier this year. Um, We did get an extension on our ligature risk um, for John George. There is ongoing work on the barrel hinges, um, but uh, we are working with that extension. And of course, a safety monitoring plan um, is continuing. Uh, Additional regulatory activities in the month of um, August, uh, we um, did have Joint Commission Resources, uh, Joint Commission Resources Education Work uh, Workshop that occurred. Um, It was very robust um, with materials in terms of ongoing and continuous regulatory readiness. And of course, we are going to, we were still working on a follow-up for our mock survey that occurred at Alameda Hospital. Commission resources and our action plan on that is nearly 90% completed. We do anticipate another mock survey um, this time for our um, Highland, San Leandro, and John George and Fairmont and Acute Rehab. Um, that will be in early October. We had such a great experience with JCR uh, Alameda Hospital. I can't wait for them to come back and work with us on the on the core um, so that uh, we're prepared, of course, um, given that uh, we are um, at the end of this month going to be back in our survey window uh, for the joint commission so um, there is some surprise about that how can we already be back in our survey window Um, however uh, uh, our survey window opens 18 months um, prior to um, the uh, expected uh, triennial end of the triennial period. And so if we go back that our our initial survey um, was actually early in 2020. And so um, uh, we are now back in our window and I'm sure um, Nilda can add some detail uh, about that. 
Um, moving on to our True North metric uh, dashboard review, um, as you can see, this is really year end of um, fiscal year 21. So while we didn't meet um, performance on our um, child and adolescent access to primary care, a lot of that was impacted by uh, COVID. And what you'll be seeing in the next True North metric uh, dashboard is that we'll be going back to our third next available. And, and uh, of course, this metric is still a quick metric, but um, we will be um, moving back to our, true, uh, our third next available with our next fiscal year dashboard. Um, this metric will just be incorporated into our quit metrics. Our observed to expected length of stay, we were on target. Um, interestingly, um, just calling attention to our median time from decision to admit, what the trustees, what you'll be seeing with the next dashboard, which is the next, next fiscal year, is that we actually changed our metric definition from an external to an internal one that really better reflects our internal um, operations. And so you'll see that while we met target in the next month, that our, our, um, our median time will actually increase because we've um, changed the um, the initial starting point for, um, to the decision to admit by the ED physician. So that better reflects our internal flow. Um, nevertheless, we will be working to uh, include that. Avoidable days per month um, are, are there. We met target on decreasing. We are going to retire this as a metric. Um, of course, this will still be monitored uh, closely by care management and, and falls into the work that we're doing as a system on improving our length of stay. Our QIP metrics are on target. Our QIP um, program is based on the calendar year. So uh, while this is a year-end report for fiscal year uh, 21, um, that uh, we were supposed to perform on, on just 40% uh, of those metrics, and we exceeded that, um, we're at 73% um, at the time of this report. Our odd class readmissions, you can see that we did not meet our target for the year. However, we did still have a reduction, um, even though it wasn't the 5% uh, reduction that we had, uh, um, we had hoped. Now, hospital-acquired uh, infections index, uh, we did not meet our target on this. Um, this is uh, in keeping with a national trend, and we're doing a, a deep dive, especially into the surgical site infections. So I very much appreciate Dr. Ellis is already looking at this, um, especially around uh, intra-abdominal infections. And so we were doing a deeper dive in all of the fallouts in order to see what we can do there. Um, for the hospital-acquired harms, we'll actually be retiring this metric um, from the dashboard. We will continue that, of course, as a watch metric. But part of it is that our performance has been so good on this over the, over the past year that we'll move it into Quality Safety Council to keep an eye on that. And, of course, if it deviates, then we would consider bringing this back um, for um, certainly sharing with our board. Uh, we've talked about the safety events, and I was also very happy to say see that our HCAPs metrics that, that that um, our performance improved significantly in the month of June. And so while we didn't uh, meet, um, meet our target for uh, year end, um, our, our performance both on HCAPs and CGCAPs improved significantly throughout the year. So I'm so proud of everyone who has, who has done this, um, uh, given that this is all done in the midst of a pandemic too, and all of the burnout and, and everything that's going on. So it's amazing that that our teams are really improving our patient experience. So with that, I'll conclude my report. That was a tour de force, Dr. Tornabene, well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, tr trustees, any questions or comments? There's, there's a lot to unpack again. Three things, we just walked through the patient safety, we just walked through regulatory affairs, and then we just walked through our True North dashboard. 
Dr. Tornabeni, I have a humble request, a couple of humble requests, if you don't mind. Of course, yeah. Uh, the first one uh, on the patient safety, the, the, uh, I think it would be appreciated if the opening slide was actually the harm score data. Um, uh, it's currently section three, but how uh, harm and safety, I think, is, is, is it's the first letter in quality, right, Steve? Yeah. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so, so I, I think I'd appreciate it if that's sort of the opening slide because that sort of gives us a picture. As to your comments that you made about how we, uh, how how far we've come, I agree with you. And then it's about how we establish the data set. If our view is very narrow, it looks like we don't we haven't moved. But if we step a little bit further back and we do a two, three, four year trend, it almost becomes wow. So, so I ask you and your team to consider uh, uh, the view on how the data comes to us. Perhaps if we took a broader view, we could understand where we've been and kind of where we are. Uh, my next uh, request is uh, for the True North metric dashboard. And this one's to Annette. Uh, this, they're, they're such great, robust data. Uh, Annette, I kindly ask you to put the dashboard. If you don't mind, make that the first, the open and then, and then, and, and instead of the end to that report, so we can see the dashboard coming right, right out of the gates. And then there's a super robust commentary on each of the metrics. And you already made comment that we are now into fiscal 22. So we, this board in last June approved um, a whole new set of metrics. So we have uh, a set of 10 metrics now, most of which are the same, but some of which are different. So. Um, thank you for that. I hope that all that is acceptable, Dr. Tornabene. Yes, definitely. Okay. Trustees, any other comments? Again, appreciation to um, Annette, Nilda, and Darshan. And uh, just to, to review, um, Nilda, uh, talk to us uh, just as a repeat one more time, the window for Alameda Hospital and the Joint Commission. If I can share my screen, I have a graphic that might just illustrate it a little easier for people and, and also help me stay on point. Okay, great. Of course you can. Okay, uh, thank you so very much. I don't know how to give you that permission, so I'll defer to our... Oh, okay, our okay. Or maybe you just take it. Can I just take it? <laughs> if that, if that, uh, is that a, a nod, I'll try. Okay, I will go ahead and give that a try and see if I can do that. And... Um, Rana? I think sometimes. Uh, yes, you can, uh, Nilda, you can. Uh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just Fantastic. whenever you're ready. Okay, got it. Thank you so much. Okay. If you can see my screen here. Um, I'll take the whole slide. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, okay. So basically, this is our Joint Commission journey. It's a three-year cycle. And as you can see here, uh, we started our journey in February of 2020. So we had the full accreditation survey at the core. And if we start the clock then, it is T minus 36 months. So um, we had, because we then got a preliminary uh, denial of accreditation decision at that survey, we were required to do the resurvey, which happened in November, delayed, of course, due to the pandemic. And that is the little detail that I have down here, the explanation and the legend at the bottom. So then that point, we were T minus 27 months. Then as a result of successful resurvey, we had one last hurdle, which was the follow-up survey. And so then that was in April of 2021, uh, much of this new board and the leadership was here. And that was the T minus 22 months. So the clock is still ticking down. 
Now that normally does not take 14 months before that whole journey happens, but being times as they are, that's what happened. So then we had a little bit of a break for four months and then we were hit our 18 month T minus 18 months. And that's when your survey window officially opens in your 36 month journey. So August of 2021, and then we are in it from now until February of 2023. You know that this is a this is a brilliant slide. If you will, every once in a while, just bring it back to us because this, this very nicely graphically sort of reminds us what we what what we sometimes forget. This is a You're very kind. Thank you. I will happily share. Yes, I'll I'll spread it wide. <laughs> And so that's AHS core. Remind us about Alameda Hospital, please. So Alameda Hospital survey is due between now and the end of November. Um, currently, uh, we right now Joint Commission is caught up on all the overdue surveys from 2020, and so they believe that they are on time. That's what they told me uh, approximately a month and a half ago. Of course, then things changed, and the last. Uh, several six weeks and so um, we are tracking to see where we are in their grid of uh, survey eligibility right now I think everybody's in kind of a holding pattern waiting uh, to see what happens but they don't anticipate right now where we're being told that no one anticipates coming early more beyond three months so we haven't seen them yet we think we're in our little golden window. Um, lots of work has been taking place at Alameda with Dr. Poon, Dr. Joshi, uh, Ronica, Teresa, uh, Mark, and James, and every and pharmacy. Everyone's been on deck and wonderfully supportive. And um, so I feel pretty good about what um, what needs to happen. But the distractions of the recent research have caused a little bit of concern around how we can support them. So we have a consultant that we have hired, an accreditation consultant, solely dedicated for Alameda Hospital. And she started yesterday. So she's been out there today with the team. And she will be the dedicated resource working with my team uh, to help just keep everybody focused and on target. Thank you, Nilda. And of, course, and of course, when that comes, remember the board of trustees is the governing body, and we will we are available, however, whenever necessary. So much, thank you so much. I have a feeling with all these uh, other issues that we are managing uh, as a, as a system, we may be calling everybody. <laughs> so don't be surprised. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. I saw a hand. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask, and you have, I'm sure this has been mentioned before, the JCR mock survey, is this the first, like, did we do self-surveys before? Is this the first time that we are having, or is it, is it something that... I believe it's the first one they've done at Alameda. Um, I, it's the first one since I've been here in the two years I've been here, but I heard that JCR had come out possibly five years ago, and I would probably have to rely on my historians like Teresa and folks that have been here longer than me, but I believe, and Jeanette knows that they had worked with us in the past, and I think they only came to the core. Um, I remember specifically speaking to them about Highland and John George, and um, possibly that they had spent some time at um, at San Leandro, but I don't believe that, that Alameda's ever had the benefit of, of a mock survey before, so this was a new experience for them. And many of those leaders, I will also say in the education that Felicia mentioned uh, for JCR that we just did the intensive leadership education, I will say almost every single leader at, Al at Alameda Hospital signed up and was part of that and really was engaged. And um, I, I was very, uh, very much uh, impressed with the questions that they had and the in interest that they had in engagement. 
So I felt pretty. I think they are. I think they they still, of course, need support. But I think that it was a good ex, it, it was a good exercise for them to go through. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all to the dialogue, and uh, I'm not that stingy because I'm running 12 minutes behind. I want to press a good dialogue, and that was a good dialogue on these issues. So with that, we will close item D, and we'll come to one of our marquee presentations for the evening. Uh, that's the quality improvement project report. Uh, just to remind, this this uh, uh, agenda item was sort of conceived by our prior CMO and our current interim CMO with our prior chief quality officer in discussion with me and I think this is a great agenda item. This evening, we're gonna be hearing about improving anesthesia controlled substances discrepancies. And we have uh, two high powered uh, players here from our system who are, who are presenting. We have Dr. Priya Patel, who is the system medication safety officer and clinical pharmacy manager. And we have Dr. Jordan Newmark, who's our chair of anesthesiology. So, uh, so to our presenters, apologies, I'm running a little bit of time. We want to hear good dialogue. You should presume that the board has read their packet. We strive for, we strive for more dialogue than reporting, but uh, we want to hear from you. So the floor is yours. Good evening, uh, good evening, Priya and Jordan. And if you will, uh, uh, I think you have a presentation uh, on your screen. Or sorry, you'll take control if you don't mind. Yes, indeed. Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you for having us. Uh, this is a topic that um, really near and dear to my heart, my heart, which is anesthesia medication safety and handling. So not only is this a national of national importance, uh, but also um, from regulatory readiness perspective, it's very important that we reconcile anesthetic and analgesic drugs um, appropriately and safely. Um, the last thing that we want are diversion events, harming patients, harming our staff members and leaking out into the community. So um, when I started as chair four years ago, um, we put significant efforts into ensuring safe handling of medications as well as reconciliation. Um, Priya, who has been my partner in crime, has really led this effort as our medication safety officer of the health system. Um, she has been really on the forefront of holding everyone accountable, um, ensuring that there's safety around these medications, um, and also doing education and training, which has led to increased performance of our team members. And so Priya is going to show you uh, the data associated with our interventions. And on a personal note, Priya has just been an absolute joy to work with. Um, she's always positive, chipper, high energy, and I really feed off of that. And we've made a great partnership together. So Priya, I want to say thank you for that. Um, it's really because of you that this performance has gotten better. And so I'd love to give the stage to you and thank you for partnering with me. Well, thank you, Jordan. I, I will pay later for the compliments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know my memo. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, no, um, in all honesty, um, we've been working on this, um, understanding that anesthesia had some issues with control substance chain um, of custody uh, for a few years. And with Jordan's leadership, in addition to some education that we thought um, would make an impact and it did, we've been able to, along with EPIC, uh, we've been able to make some um, major, major improvements. And so um, what I wanted to share with you is back in January of 2020, um, there was an audit done. We kind of did an audit right after EPIC to understand where we were um, once we went live with our control substance um, uh, process. And that audit in January of last year allowed us to uncover that 3.6% of all controlled substances handled in anesthesia had discrepancies. And 
it showed us that AHS actually did not have good control over these highly um, DEA-regulated medications. In addition to that, in the last five years, we had two documented diversion cases, um, one with an anesthesiologist and another with a CRNA. And there was high, uh, there was a lack of accountability for these that's required not only by the DEA, but the State Board of Pharmacy, um, CMS, and Joint Commission. There's general risk for drug diversion with these medications, and um, it's known that anesthesiologists or CRNAs are 2.7 times more likely to abuse these drugs because of the um, the department that they work in. There's there's high accessibility. And Just so, going to answer that, Priya, I'm sorry. Yes. That there is a yeah. theory out there, which is gray science, but... There is a suggestion in the newer literature that perhaps anesthesia providers, we report each other more than other fields. So that might be a slightly falsely elevated signal, but there's no doubt about it. We have direct access to these things and the direct access is a danger. Yeah. But we also do report each other more. So I think we deserve a little credit for that. <laughs> <nationally>. <laughs> um, so during our investigation uh, and root cause, what we found um, is that a lot of the cultural practices um, from the different sites, the acute care sites, um, carried over from the old from the old electronic system. So the lack of robust systems in the past, prior to Epic, allowed uh, that normally would allow providers to meticulously track control substances, has increased the perception that anesthesia providers may be too casual in how they handle it because we didn't have that meticulous system prior to Epic. And then once we went live with Epic, now we have this robust system that allows for tracking of where the medications are going in addition to documentation. We also found that there was an inefficient provider workflow uh, that was resulting from an incomplete anesthesia medication list that was leading to documentation um, errors within Epic. And it was um, different in different areas. And what that uh, what happened is that medications were being omitted from the data health system reports. So when we were doing reconciliation, we were noticing a lot of missing medications, or so we thought. There was a lack of awareness amongst the providers of their own discrepancies and um, how to reconcile them. And then there was also lack of standardization in the administration documentation um, in the new EHR. The implementation plan really involved three areas. Um, it involved first was staff engagement. We then formed a working work group, and then we focused on workflow changes. Um, staff engagement was the first area that we really kind of looked in, uh, looked into. Jordan uh, created an in-service anesthesia providers right off the bat in January when we realized the number of uh, discrepancies that were being identified. Um, we wanted to, to meet with the staff to, to do one, two things. One, we wanted to provide them information and really lay down the foundation of where we were, where we wanted to be, and why we needed to get there. And as Jordan mentioned, you know, patient safety, um, regulatory requirements, ensuring that there's control over these medications. We really wanted to provide them with information of why we're, why this is so important, but then also get feedback from them on what challenges and gaps um, they're encountering as end users. We engaged the pharmacy leaders at each of the acute 
uh, acute care sites on standardizing language uh, for when we communicate to the providers so that way um, they're able to communicate back in a very efficient way given their busy schedule. And then we engaged the EPIC team with our anesthesia team to help improve documentation workflow, which then also allowed um, uh, improvements in the, the reconciliation process. So our work group that we formed, um, you know, was to engage the different stakeholders because we found that there were a lot of different um, departments um, that could have been, that could be involved or needed to be involved in some of these discrepancies. And so really it's to help oversee the process and report findings from a group. Um, the um, committee uh, work group includes pharmacy, anesthesia, nursing, compliance, patient safety, human resources, if we needed them um, for any employee issues, and legal, uh, if there was actually diversion that was identified. The committee uh, or the work group meets monthly to discuss the discrepancies for tracking and trending, and then also uses that information to help improve processes. And then the committee also um, makes recommendations on next steps for employees if a trend with a particular employee has been identified. So um, our next step was to really look at what processes needed to change and what standard work needed to be created. So um, uh, we first implemented standard work for how pharmacy was going to review, interpret, and communicate out the control substance discrepancies. Even though there were reports that were being generated by EPIC, there's still a manual process for reconciling what was removed, what was administered, and what was wasted. And what we found is for the three different sites, uh, pharmacy had their own uh, standard work. And so what we did is we implemented standard work for all three sites. So that way, um, the information that's being communicated, um, you know, comes from a very process-driven um, uh, way. We then updated um, EPIC team and anesthesia work together to update the entry anesthesia interop medication list to help improve provider workflow administration documentation. Um, and then there was standard work um, that was um, created to help providers communicate back to pharmacy uh, any reconciliations that they had for their own discrepancies. And so that, that really had the feedback mechanism. If there was a discrepancy, providers had the chance to explain what happened or if they documented it in another area. And so what we found... Um, Priya? Yes. Apologies. Uh, you, you may or may not know this. Your slides haven't been up. But, oh. but no, 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 no. I'm, I'm telling you, this is good because you've been talking us through and I actually personally, and I've gotten some comments from the trustees. This is so much better. <laughs> when oh. their slides. So I didn't stop you because you were doing a great job. talking. Oh, okay. But, but this you. slide is a big one because okay. it, 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 this one tells kind of, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. I actually asked uh, uh, our council to pull up this slide, the anesthesia results. So, Sorry for keeping this from you, but you were doing great talking to us. Thank you. Okay, but, great. But, but but this is a great this is a great picture uh, for for those of you who are in the audience. Now 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 it's up because this one's this one's sort of the wow. Yeah, so we started so, off. Ap that apologies for interrupting. No, don't. Yeah, don't that's apologize. okay. No, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
So in uh, January of 2020, we are, you know, we have our percentage of discrepancies were at 3.6%. Mind you, we want to be at zero. Um, and for the last four months, we've been at zero percent. And so, you know, it took uh, a, a few months to kind of understand, um, to really hardwire the, some of the implementation um, items that we uh, had that I had talked about, but over, I, I would say November is when we released October, November of last year is when we really started to see sustainability with, um, with the, uh, with the, the processes that we had put into place. And so we're down to zero now. <laughs> um, which so really, let's, really just, let's just, everyone just hold on and look at, at this graph. It's actually quite impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so this is why, you know, in wow, right? Every quality improvement project would love to have a graph. And, and just to brag about Priya a little bit more, we did a we did another project about a year ago, about maybe it was more of a year and a half ago at this point, around IV Tylenol use throughout the health system. And IV Tylenol is just being used like kind of like saline, like water. And yeah. Priya like really spearheaded an educational thing about IV Tylenol use and the cost and really like significantly dropped, I think probably by like a million dollars in that time frame that we measured. So, um, so that was another intervention that Priya like was heavily involved in at roughly the same time, maybe a bit earlier, but yeah, definitely. I'm really happy to see this result and having improved, improved issues with discrepancies and keeping, you know, the OR environment and the staff and the patients safer. Yeah. It's interesting because I think the culture within anesthesia has definitely changed. Um, now, anytime a provider gets an email that they have a discrepancy, I will get, you know, we, we will get a message. Uh, I mean, they're on top of it. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the education that was initially done, in addition to that, um, we've sent out memos, um, you know, letting them know the improvements that have been going on throughout the whole process. So they get to see that the work that they're putting into this is really making a difference. And so I think one of the, you know, how we're able to sustain this is really through continued um, engagement with the providers, continuing to provide feedback to the providers on where, um, you know, where we've been and where we're at. Uh, and then using the same process, hopefully um, on other units. I will say we did um, use the same process or similar process where we have a work group. We meet with the leaders at the Highland ED and the numbers have decreased drastically there as well. And so um, not only, you know, hopefully we'll continue to sustain this, which I think we will be, uh, but we can also allow um, this, you know, similar processes to um, infiltrate some of the other areas that we may be seeing, seeing issues in. So I'm going to throw you a meatball, Priya. How is this going to be sustainable? All right, next slide. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So the control substance work group um, can, continues to meet monthly. Um, and then again, you know, we've, we've um, identified other units that um, could benefit from this process. And then I think the key really is to um, continue to engage the providers. Yes. And then our team is multi. It's uh, Jordan, myself, uh, Teresa Cooper, uh, Compliance, uh, Rick, Jeff, and Akimi, and then Darsham. And then also um, Ahmad when we need him, and then Paul uh, from HR. 
that's our record. Thank you so much. Ahmad, will you take us back to full? So thank you so much for that report. Um, and, and so, so what, what are the, you know, keeping them um, as a monthly meeting, but you've, we've now seen, seen since March, April, May, June, 0.0% controlled substance diversions. That's, that's amazing. And as I say, two data points is not a trend, but we have four. Um, so so what, what are the measures? I think in my opinion is a lot of this is cultural, right? And that's yes. led yep. by their chair, uh, Dr. Yep. Newmark. So um, does this become a continued watch metric, Dr. Newmark? How, how do you manage the, the culture to sustain so we don't get leakage? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'd say a complicated question. Um, what I can say is, you know, the old expression, what's past is prologue. So certainly we're going to keep doing what we're doing now. Um, we are having more and more new clinicians join the department all the time that, um, you know, are very green, young and hungry for good performance. So I think part of the cultural issue is the people that are within the department. And you may have seen, I sent an email just today that we have two new anesthesiologists starting early next month. Um, so I think it's about just the people that you bring into the department and then doing the education and the training, mm. but time will tell. Um, culture is so important. And I, I, it is my opinion that, that it, that is first and foremost on the leader's job is to sustain and maintain culture. And, um, Dr. Newmark has been the chair of anesthesiology for four years. Um, Dr. Newmark, uh, I, I think this might be uh, perhaps your last formal venue to the board. So please, can you tell us about yourself? And, and, and obviously this kind of work gives us appreciation for, for, for what's being done in anesthesia. Oh, no, well, thank you for saying that. You know, um, you know, I am transitioning away from the organization late next month. And it uh, was very kind of an emotional, challenging decision for me to make. Um, I've debriefed with multiple leaders about why I made that decision. And I am uh, hopeful and optimistic that the changes that I gave for feedback will be instituted for the next leader so they can um, guide the department in the way that needs to be guided. Um, really being chair for the past four years has been one of the highlights of my life. You know, I just turned 40 years old. I just celebrated my 10 year anniversary. So a lot of milestones in the past couple of weeks for me. And I've just done a lot of life reflections. And in that context, really leading the department and having the opportunity to do so has been a lot to me. So thank you all for allowing me to do it. Thank you for recognize. I'm sorry, Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Banerjee, and Dr. Tornabene. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Tornabene. Thank you. Yeah, um, I just wanted to recognize Dr. Newmark's service. So over this tenure, Dr. Newmark has overseen expansion of the um, department into three hospitals. And so it's a seamless, integrated department now with a really relentless focus on quality and um, patient care and collaboration. And, and Dr. Newmark, you are a huge reason why that's the case. So thank you so much. You're too kind for saying that. I really give credit for to the department. Uh, I'll, I'll personally say that you know uh, I, I this, this I'm approaching just my 13th year here, but uh, uh, when Dr. Newmark joined four years ago, uh, uh, it, the, the 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 delta on this department it's 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 obvious. The the positive delta on this department has been obvious, and uh, he's not one to take credit for himself, knowing him, but. Uh, he, he, he deserves much of the credit for helping to reframe the culture. Um, and I think uh, 
his department is in a better place because of him. And uh, I appreciate him. I, I, uh, Jordan and I have had direct, uh, our services have directly interacted in our service I know now is better because of our interaction with anesthesiology, which we didn't previously have. So Jordan, I, I uh, thank you for, thank you for working here and, and making things better. You know, we've had these many conversations before. You're too kind. I think I'm going to cry. I'm going to try not to, <laughs> but you guys are too kind to me. And, you know, I just, what can I say? We serve a very important group of patients and this is probably the most mission driven organization I've ever been a part of. And it's because of all of you that, Anastasia has felt supported and been able to do the work that it did. So it's truly a team and uh, we continue to behave that way. And in fact, in our, in our vision statement of the department, it has the word collaborative around seven times in that vision statement, because you can't do anesthesia in isolation, nor can any of us do our jobs in isolation. It's a collaborative approach to the patients we serve. Mr. Jackson. Thank you very much, Chair Bouquet. I am new in this role, but I'm not new to the organization. And I recall the disparate anesthesia service when I was here previously. And so I certainly understand the value of what um, Dr. Newmark has brought. And I am a beneficiary in my current role of the observations that he mentioned. I've had a, a few opportunities to sit with Dr. Newmark. He's given me very valuable um, insights and observations of opportunities for improvement. So I'm, I'm grateful to you, Dr. Newmark, for all that you've done for the organization and for your insights that will help us be a better organization in the future. Thank you for that. And I've really appreciated getting to know you, Mr. Jackson, and spending time with you. Thank you. All right, team. Thank you. That was a, a, a very nice agenda item. With that, we will close out um, agenda item E and we will do item F and uh, I'm not running on time, but this is important dialogue. Um, item F is a COVID-19 update by our interim chief medical officer, Dr. Uh, Tornabene. Uh, Dr. Tornabene, the floor is yours. Okay, great. Um, what I'll do is I'll just talk through uh, the slides that are in the packet. So I wanted to um, share with the trustees an update of where we are as a system. Um, the, the first slide is our, our own run chart of our waves. And so that was, maybe we could get that one. Up. Yeah, yeah that, that, one's, that one's a good one. That's a good data set if, if we can pull that slide up. Um, yeah. Ahmad, is it possible to pull that slide or, or Rana? It's, it's page, eight, page 84. 84 of the packet. Correct, yeah. And you know these, this is a, a run chart that you, you know that is frequently um, this visualization is frequently used in media like the New York Times and and uh, so I wanted to make one for us internally at AHS. So I thank the BI team for putting this um, together, and it really shows that the um, this these are our waves. So this is our three acute care hospitals. Um, we had that first wave a, a little that began a little bit in March, April of 2020, but really extended um, in the summer, the very large wave over last winter. And then this one, of course, this, uh, as is noted on that slide, um, it's only months to date for August as of 8.13. And so, um, you know, we, I can certainly bring this chart back um, so we keep an eye on this. Um, and what we'll see for August is, of course, um, an increasing wave. We have not yet come out of this current surge. So um, in our current surge, um, our response has included 
reopening of our COVID-19 testing site at the Highland um, HCP2 testing garage. So uh, what we had wanted to do, and we did it for a few weeks, is really start to make COVID-19 testing available at our usual lab draw stations at our three acute care hospitals. However, given the increased transmissibility of the Delta variant, we felt like we needed to take it outside again. Uh, and so we reopened um, that P2 garage site uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, it's, it's going well. We still had many of the structures up um, and we have shut down the testing in, our, um, in the inside of our buildings. We did implement uh, inpatient visitation restrictions. Um, that was, of course, guided by uh, by the CDPH on these visitation restrictions. And for our inpatients right now, our only uh, our visitors, um, and it's so difficult as a physician to limit family access. But of course, this is for safety around the pandemic. Um, the visitors have to either be vaccinated, and they have to show proof of vaccination for our inpatients, or a negative test within 72 hours of visiting. Um, the only exception to this is, of course, the, the partners for our um, birthing patients. Um, if they, if, you know, that uh, uh, there's not necessarily proof of vaccination needed so that our, our birthing patients do have some support. Uh, we also developed a COVID-19 testing site and process at San Leandro Hospital. It launched this week. Uh, very much uh, appreciate. And um, so many staff came out out, came out to support employee health, health and get that up and running. And then our recovery oversight committee, we continue to meet every single week um, on Mondays and we um, have incorporated important voices like infection prevention into that um, uh, committee. And uh, we continue to have dialogue um, over email throughout the week to support the recovery um, or in some cases, you know, drawing back of, of services in uh, this current surge. So as of um, earlier this month, 8-10-21, the, the patient characteristics, you already heard Dr. Besh allude to this, this wave has a younger median age. So based on the information that I received from Dr. Mawazed, that the median age of at least the, the group of patients um, that he had analyzed at the time of submitting this report was 50. It was 59 in our prior winter wave. The majority of these patients being admitted are unvaccinated. And so of those patients that have low oxygen levels, 82% of them are unvaccinated. In this wave, there's a higher rate of ICU admission. Um, and so our 32% of patients um, uh, are now being admitted to the ICU in this wave. 24% in the prior wave. Um, of course, Dr. Mawaza did uh, say that, that there could be some confounding of this because um, in the prior wave, there was a number of patients who were comfort care and so might have um, met criteria for ICU care, but of course we focused on comfort and not ICU care. So that could have compounded that number um, or that could have uh, uh, introduced some um, variation in that number. Our COVID-19 treatment committee um, has continued, also led by Dr. Mawazid and previously also Dr. Gia, has um, continued to offer us as a system recommendations on the treatment of COVID-19. COVID-19, and we have an, actually are introducing a new a medication even just this week. Um, all patients being admitted to our hospitals, um, irrespective of whether they're suspected of having COVID-19, are tested for COVID-19. We did institute that last fall, and that has been maintained. 
uh, for our vaccination, our vaccination efforts, um, you know, a huge, huge num- uh, um, effort on this. Um, we've vaccinated um, over, uh, we've had the administration of, I think, almost 25,000 vaccine administrations in the last seven days alone. When I looked at the COVID dashboard this morning for vaccinations, 350 in the past week. Um, so we, we continue to, you know, encourage our patients um, to, to get vaccinated. Um, our, uh, when I, Terry Dixon from Employee Health does share our um, data on our employee employee vaccinations. And earlier this week, um, she shared that fully vaccinated are 78% and first dose 80%. However, um, likely it's higher than that, um, given that a number of staff uh, got vaccinated in other uh, places. And and that information is flowing in from what I understand from from Terry. Um, Most of our vaccinations have occurred at Highland Hospital. Um, We've had a very active um, uh, vaccination site at the HCP um, building, but we do offer uh, vaccinations at um, our other wellness centers as well. uh, for for ambulatory care, we did develop a playbook last summer for COVID nineteen, and that that playbook remains um, in place. That that helps provide guidance on the care of COVID nineteen patients in ambulatory, as well as um, uh, PUIs or persons under investigation. Those are su- those are patients who are suspected of having COVID nineteen. Um, telehealth, um, as we've uh, shared before, has been a very important modality. And, and we're excited and um, so grateful for the whole team that launched our Doximity um, telehealth platform last week. I hear it's gone very well. And we continue to have centralized RN triage support for ambulatory for patients to call in and really support the call center on triaging our patients who are suspected um, of having COVID-19. Uh, turning now to post-acute, so uh, post-acute um, continues to test all of our uh, patients, unvaccinated and par- partially vaccinated patients, twice a week. Um, we continue having screening of all of our visitor- visitors at the door of our post-acute um, uh, buildings and validating either COVID vaccine, COVID vaccination status or testing within 72 hours, just like in our um, acute inpatient environment. Uh, we do employee screening at the door for symptoms that also is maintained in the acutes. Um, and then we do response testing uh, should uh, any positive residents be identified. At the time of the slides, there were no positive residents in post-acute. Um, however, as of today, we do have two positives, um, two patients with COVID-19 in, in post-acute um, in one of the Fairmont um, uh, units, and we are treating that as a so-called yellow zone. So unfortunately, those residents don't get to to be together um, and collective dining or activities, but until we come out of this outbreak um, status, our vaccination rate in post-acute is 92% of the first dose and 86% of the of the second dose with very high staff vaccination rates. Um, so with that, uh, that concludes my COVID-19 report. I'm certainly open for questions. Thank you, Dr. Tornabeni. Another tour de force or two for two tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, trustees, a lot of data in that, and this is obviously the thing on, on the national psyche. Uh, all right, Dr. Tornabeni, a little bit of a tough one coming out. I'm sorry, we didn't talk about this before. I know on the, on the national front, there's discussion about uh, there's been advisement about 
boosters. The, the topic is boosters. Boosters are certainly for the immunocompromised. Can you advise on directions you're confronting? How is this organization going to address or in, uh, uh, how are we uh, evolving that dialogue about boosters in our system? Sure, yeah. So, um, uh, Dr. Swift um, has been such a key leader in, in this space. And so she has reconvened the task force, uh, the vaccination task force. And so that, that task force is coming back together to really help organize the booster program. Um, we are already offering it for patients who meet the criteria, meaning immunosuppression. Um, so there are those criteria that for that recommendation and those vaccines are available to our patients right now. Um, should um, uh, recommendations continue to come out for our healthcare workers or our older adults, then all of that will be rolled out through our employee health program and then also um, certainly through our routine um, patient care program, but guided by our COVID-19 um, vaccine task force. Got it. Thank you for that. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Tornabene? Scanning, scanning, nope. With, with that, um, I'm going to close out item, actually before I close out item F, this is going to also be an agenda item on the full board meeting uh, on September 8th. We might have more data subsequent to that. So the, again, this is on the organization psyche. Uh, it's on it's on the national psyche. So we want we want to uh, main, maintain attention to it. So just know um, with regard to that report, I, I would appreciate it if the report included some um, information about the ages, as we heard from um, our uh, from Dr. Um, Mawazid, was that who it was? Well, one of the physicians who presented regarding, um, I think it was in the the staff reports regarding the number of patients, the the age of patients, and that would be helpful to get an idea of the difference there. Great, Dr. Tornabene. So a couple of weeks, and uh, I know that will be tag team with Mr. Jackson. So maybe some demographics. Uh, and, and 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 possibly and uh, so I, I don't I, I'm sort of thinking off the top of my head if there are demographics on our own uh, patient our own employees who've tested positive vis 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 vaccination status and all of that as a group not as individuals of course because okay. of it, it, that may or may not be possible but just a, as a potential question okay I'll look into it okay with that we will close item F. Item G is planning calendar and issue tracking. We are uh, we are continuing on in our September meeting. We will continue to be the fourth uh, uh, Wednesday of the month. Uh, just as a recollection to everyone, there is a board retreat on Friday, September 17th. It's an all-day retreat. The agenda has was discussed last week in um, the executive committee. We'll be messaging uh, further uh, as the agenda sort of more broadly evolves, uh, but uh, just for those in the room, uh, have that on your on your calendar. It will be an all-day Zoom. Uh, we've had counsel that uh, we shouldn't uh, have an in-person meeting, although this board has never sat in the same room together. Uh, too bad, but um, uh, we'll be doing it by Zoom. So with that, uh, any other issue tracking or planning calendar items from the trustees that they want to make comment about? With that, we'll close item G, and that moves us to closed session. Uh, Council. Quality Committee of the Board will now go into closed session to consider those items stated on the agenda. Uh, we'll come back and make a report out if necessary to the public if you're still here. We're anticipating being enclosed for 
ballpark 20 minutes um, or so. Uh, if we don't see you, have a great evening.